welcome to the Rhythms Podcast. I'm Brian Wise, the editor of the magazine. Thanks for joining me. My special guest this week is Billy Bragg, the singer, songwriter, author and activist they call the Bard from Barking. It was 38 years ago that Bragg began his recording career and also began to stake his claim as one of the foremost political singer-songwriters in the UK with his very first record, Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy. Since then, Billy's released 13 studio albums, eight compilations, two box sets, as well as collaborations with Wilco on Mermaid Avenue and Joe Henry on Shine a Light, field recordings from the Great American Railroad. Bragg was named Trailblazer of the Year at the Americana Music Association UK Awards in February 2016, and in that same year was awarded the Spirit of Americana Free Speech in Music at the Americana Music Awards in Nashville, co-presented by the First Amendment Centre. In 2017, Billy followed up his book, The Progressive Patriot, with the deeply researched heartfelt history of Skiffle, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, which was shortlisted for the Penderin Music Book Prize, the Mercury Prize of Books. In 2018, Billy Bragg was honoured with the PRS Outstanding Contribution to British Music Award at the Ivan Novello Awards, sealing his status as a statesman as well as a great musician and chronicler of his time. Lockdown couldn't keep Billy Bragg down. Known for his ceaseless touring, instead he looked inwardly as well as outwardly and joined the two together on a new set of songs which became the album The Million Things That Never Happened. And that's the album that we caught up by Zoom to have a chat about. It also features guest appearances from Billy's son, Jack Valero, and was produced in the south of England. So let's have a long conversation with Billy Bragg, and I'll also play for you some of the music from the album and some of the music that is related to our discussion. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, and you too, bud. Whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in uh, the south coast of England, Dorset, where it's a beautiful early autumn day here, and it's been uh, it's been beautiful. Yeah, we're just waiting for the equinox to turn up and the nights to get shorter, and uh, we're getting a northern winter. I know that you've done an online gig, and people can access that, and that looks pretty spectacular. But have you been able to do any other gigs at all recently? I, you've got a tour coming up, sort of October, November, haven't you? But anything else? I do. I have, I, have a U, I have a UK tour that starts in about a month, but no, I haven't done any gigs at all. I've been very careful. My partner is uh, immunocompromised, so I have to be a bit careful. I've been shielding her. And although our mask mandate is ended here, most people, you go to the supermarket, most people are still wearing masks. So we're all been a bit careful, hoping that um you know we might be able to get this thing under control this winter and not have the same winter we had last time we're looking forward to seeing you out here because it's a series of special concerts and we were very much looking forward to it and then it was cancelled so we can hardly wait to see those well i'm the same i'm incredibly frustrated about it because it was the next thing when the first lockdown came in in the uh, spring of last year it was next on the agenda i was all ready to go and um it was put back a year and then put back a year again so it's been doubly frustrating for me 
you've said that you filled that first lockdown with sort of various clips and playlists and everything and um, you were looking for something else to focus on which I guess led to this well it did indeed lead to, to this album you were able to get into a studio to record it I wasn't able to get into a studio which kind of made it even more interesting yeah I did I always intended to make an album in 2021 but I had expected to be able to spend 2020 on the road trying out songs because mm. that's kind of how I write these days you know I'm not like I used to be in my in my 20s writing all the time it's something that I kind of tune into when I need to so I that's what I do in sound checks I have scraps of ideas and I kind of work them up might throw a song into the set but none of that happened so not really hadn't really thought about making the album until the second lockdown I thought well, I really should try and get on top of this otherwise this all this time's going to pass and I've done nothing so I got in touch with Romeo Stoddart from the Magic Numbers who's been doing some production and I, I really like what he does and, and he works with a guy named David Zumi and together they're, they're known for their arrangements and I really wanted to work with uh, someone or a team that was going to arrange my songs for me because when I send them a, a, a demo of a song it's just me and a, and a guitar and that's it really I haven't really thought through until we get to the recording process so I needed someone who was going to expand that and the weird thing with this was because I couldn't get into the studio because what happened is we booked the studio time and then the lockdown come back in so I couldn't physically go there but Dave and Romeo were in a bubble so they could work so I ended up sending them my demos and they would send me back realized backing tracks which was brilliant because they they did exactly what I wanted them to do they expanded on my idea they arranged my ideas they added to my ideas and I, I really like what they sent back and so it wasn't until uh, springtime when I was able to go to the studio to do the vocals and by then most of the album was recorded it was brilliant so they put the band the studio band together they did, yeah. They put a studio band together. And on a lot of the tracks, it was just the two of them because Romeo plays a lot of instruments. Dave is pretty good on keyboards and he has an original Mellotron wow. in the studio, which is a, an old 1960s instrument, which when you press a key, it's a keyboard. And when you press the keyboard, it plays a tape sample of a, of a stringed instrument recorded in the 1960s. It's a really archaic piece of you can get a modern one now but it don't sound the same and he i saw it when i went to the studio to, to recce the studio when in the gap between the lockdowns i saw it there and i thought oh i hope he uses a bit of that he used it on the first song and i told him how much i liked it and he said our oh, trouble is no one lets me use it anymore and i was like well actually because it has quite a woozy sound you know it's that sound of um you know, a sort of strawberry fields forever kind of sound. And it seemed that woozy sound, that strange dreamlike sound to me was very reminiscent of the feeling of being in the lockdown and not knowing what was going to happen next, that kind of ambiguous feeling. So I said to Dave, look, you know, use it where you feel it. And it's it's on quite a bit of the record and I really like it. Well, I know Joe Henry likes to use unusual instruments and uh, you've worked with him a lot and they do add something to a record, don't they? Because you, you're listening to the album, you, you're wondering, what that particular sound might be and it can add just a little bit of extra sort of intonation to it. Yeah, texture. It's true. I mean, particularly when you're a, a predominantly a solo performer like me, dynamics and texture become really, really important. But more, more than that, I think there's always a, a sort of subconscious fear or rather a fear, a straightforward fear that you're, you might subconsciously repeat yourself after making records for as long as I have. You know, I sometimes find myself getting into an interesting chord sequence and I think, yeah, well, yeah, that's must I paint you a picture. That's why I like it so much. You know, I've already written this song. 
chuck it out, you know. So you're, you're always trying to to get outside of your, the way you think and the way that you write and the, those comfortable shapes you make with your fingers, you know, the chords. And working with someone like Joe helped me to do that, but more so with, with Romeo and Dave because they had complete control in the studio and I wasn't there. So I couldn't sit behind them raising an arched eyebrow when they put the third layer of Mellotron onto something. You know, they just went and did it. And it, as I say, it, I thought it sounded great. That is probably a good thing, not having the musician there trying yeah. to interfere with what you, the producer's yeah. doing. not having the customer there telling you that you want a, a bit more of this and a bit more of that. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing. I mean, obviously, I did have some input. I mean, you know, those things where I thought they'd kind of drifted off. But I did some quite radical things on... Um, there's a track called Good Days and Bad Days. Mm. And they they really liked the the because this, you know, it's about someone trying to deal with mm. well, any not just the pandemic, but any kind of uh, situation where they don't feel that they're in control. And they actually used my demo that I recorded in my office at home for the first part of each verse. It's the, just me playing the, the acoustic guitar quietly. And then they build in, in the court when the kind of chorus part comes, they build in everything else and go into a completely uh, newly made thing. And when I first heard it, I thought, well, that sounds a bit strange. But then I realized that it was genius because there's actually a bit of the lockdown on the record now. That's me in the lockdown on my own. You know, the very thing I'm talking about, I'm actually doing it on the record. So I was really pleased with it. Boring old normal, how attractive it seems Since life came and kicked a great big hole in my dreams Now I read all the words on the tins on the shelf And I try to remember to be kind to myself And the days keep crawling past Just how long can this emptiness last? Just give me something I can fix my eyes on a hint of hope out on the far horizon Good days and bad days, I have no doubt I could get by if they'd just even them out Just can't shake off this great weight that I feel Get up and get dressed shouldn't be such a big deal And now I don't know where things end or begin The day of the week or the state that I'm in but the days keep crawling past Just how long can this emptiness last? I know your son Jack is on the last track. Is he on any other songs on the he album? He is, well? yeah. Yeah, he came down for the live day. He lives up the road in Brighton. We were in Eastbourne. Yeah. So I said he could come down and play on uh, the track that we co-wrote together, 10 Mysterious Photos That Can't Be Explained. And because it was live day, he just stuck around. I think he plays on Pass It On, and I think he also plays on uh, Mid-Century Modern. 
Now, that must be great to have him involved in your music, which he has been for a little it is, while. Yeah, it is great in the aspect of we've found something that we both love that we enjoy doing, you know. I was once um, driving with him when he was younger and still learning about music. We were talking about the Rolling Stones, listening to uh, Moonlight Mile from Sticky Fingers. And um, I said to him, check out this bit here where Keith plays this guitar riff at the end here. And the, and the orchestra kind of falls in with him, you know, just the strings at first. And then gradually the entire orchestra is following Keith. sat in silence for a while and we listened to it and when it ended I said to him you know Jack I never had this conversation with my dad and he said yeah it's great isn't it and I was you know I thought it was it's a good thing that we found something that we both like I mean it could have been anything it could have been football you know it could have been I don't know white water rafting or something but it, the fact that this music is great because I know that he has a means to sort of deal with the day you know when he used to come home from school if he had a rotten day he'd go upstairs plug in his electric guitar and I'd hear him bashing out Ramon songs and I think, okay, well, he's, he's getting it out of his system. So it's a good, you know, music is a form of therapy for those of us who play an instrument. It has a very therapeutic uh, reaction to us because for a moment, you know, it, it kind of uh, it, it helps you to transcend your surroundings. You know, when our Jack was playing those Ramon songs, he wasn't in his parents' upstairs front bedroom in Dorset. You know, he was at CBGB's in 1977 with the Ramones. And it's good to be able to have a place to go like that where you can escape uh, from from the way the world is in a way that doesn't mess up your body. You know, you're not injecting anything into your or knocking yourself out with booze or something, you know. To, to, to be a music fan like that, to be able to play like that is a very positive thing to have, I think. Is he going to be a musician or has he got aspirations or have you managed to talk him out of it? No, no, he, he is a musician. He lives in Brighton and uh, works for Deliveroo, like all musicians. <laughs> Actually, that's that's not true. He doesn't work for Deliveroo anymore at the moment. Actually, he works in, the, in a COVID testing station, sticking straws up people's noses. He's uh, part of the COVID econ economy at the moment. But yeah, he's playing. He was in a band. He was in a little band called the RPMs hmm. and they had a good go. They went to uh, South by Southwest one year. Oh, yeah. They had a right little bash. They put out a couple of records. But when uh, uh, college came to an end, the band kind of broke up and now he's, he's writing singer-songwriter songs, doing open mics, Play, was in, did a, had a gig in Camden last week in, in central London. So he's, do, you know, he's out there. Jack Valero he, is the yeah. name he plays yeah. under. And he's out there doing his thing, the same as I was when I was his age. So as I say, I think, you know, I'm pleased that he's doing what he wants to do, you know. That's a, that's a good thing to be able to do. With a bunch of strangers who all share my name I gathered at the graveside in the pouring rain Never thought I'd find myself back here again Yet here I am standing in the lane Got a lot of pieces missing in my past Never really noticed 
Now, the album's titled The Million Things That Never Happened, and you've said that it's not quite about the pandemic, although some of the songs could be re- related to it. I guess it's a subject that's almost impossible to escape if you're making an album during it, isn't it? It is, really. I mean, my albums have always been a reflection of where I am at that given time, Brian. So, you know, usually, though, I'm trying to get the audience to come and pay attention to something I feel uh, concerned about, you know, whether it's emotional or political, whatever. But obviously with the pandemic, it's a universal experience. So if you're going to write about it, you do have to write about it in a way that isn't every song is focused on that thing. So I've tried to write in a much broader way so that people can bring their own experience of the pandemic or of any anything really to it. You know, good days and bad days works like that. The opening track, Should Have Seen It Coming, could be about anything that knocks you sideways, you know. And I Will Be Your Shield, although it obviously has its roots in, in the notion of shielding during the pandemic, it's the idea of being not just a physical uh, shield, but an emotional shield for someone that you care about, a support in many ways. I think that's a universal idea. So there's a lot of that broader universality in the songs than perhaps normally would be on a Billy Bragg album. When things start to unravel And days fill you with dread When comments dent your confidence Confide in me instead When every little setback just makes you want to cry when the whole world seems against you and you don't know why in the battle against your demons I I will be When the world has lost all meaning together we'll stand for our love is the one thing that's real When pressure wrought by changes becomes too much to bear And pain stops you from functioning Trust in me to care When the world beyond your doorstep No longer makes much sense And hostile thoughts surround you I'll come to your defense In the battle Lost all meaning together We'll stand for our love Is the one thing that's real You're listening to the Rhythms Podcast I'm Brian Wise, I'm talking to Billy Bragg 
one of the press releases I've read says that the album is the first pandemic blues album of our times, which I hadn't really thought about that until I read that read that particular yeah. quote. And I, I'm pretty certain you didn't write it. No, I didn't know, but that's what the way people have reacted to it. Yeah. So I think that obviously it's it's touching a few nerves where it should. You know, it's not all about the pandemic. The pandemic is the backdrop to it, but so is Trump. Trump's the backdrop to it. Oh, and also, oh. if you listen closely, sort of rumbling away in the distance, those kind of what sounds like thunder, that's Brexit going down. You know, that's happening as well. You know, all these kind of things. And trying to make sense of them. I mean, that's what I've always done with music, as I mentioned before. It's a form of therapy. And I'm trying to make sense of the way these things have made me feel. And, and if you're looking for that as well, then then this record is for you. I mean, I think I do think that the creative arts have a role to play in helping us make sense of the world. And particularly in this time now, this time of kind of this universal experience of the pandemic, because it's something, you know, there's nothing in our lifetimes that we've had that's been like this. You'd have to, I suppose, you'd have to have lived through the Second World War mm. to have been in a time where there was a universal experience. So this, this is not a place we've been before. And I think when we come out the other end of it, um, we will be changed. We'll have a different perspective on society, on ourselves, on our uh, you know fellow citizens. But most of all, I think we'll, we'll have a sense of loss. Those things that we we hoped to do, we wanted to do, we felt we should do. You know, and it'll be everything from the trivial meeting mates up the pub to the the you know the the traumatic experience of not being able to be present when someone you love passed away. You know that I think that's going to be something that stays with a lot of people for a long time. So that that sense of loss is what I'm really referring to in the title track, the mm. million things that have happened. That's very true because you can think of so many instances where people have not been able to do what they wanted to do. I mean, I count myself incredibly lucky. Yeah, I think, you know, most of the time, you know, individual freedom, we, we lean more towards that and rightly so. People should be able to do, broadly speaking, what they what they want to do, provided they don't harm anybody else. But in the times that we're living in, I think we have to lean more towards the idea of the common good and recognise that in order to get through this, we you know we have to do things that we might not normally want to do, whether that's wearing a mask in the supermarket or getting vaccinated or whatever. Because you know those people out demonstrating at the weekend against vaccination, against the mask mandate. You know, I want the pandemic to end as much as they do. But I think in the end, the only way we're really going to get through it in a way that is not really about individual liberty, but is about compassion towards people who are immunocompromised. And trust me, there are more people who can't go out because they're not well enough to, to have COVID. COVID would kill them. There's more people like that than there are people out on the streets complaining about their individual liberty. Yeah. So, you know, we I prefer to think of those people the immunocompromised, those people who are not able to be part of society and do everything I can to bring them back. And so then we can go back and, and lean towards individual freedom again in the way that we, we like to when we can. But at the moment, and what we're going through, I mean, we, you know, in the UK here, you know, we have the second highest number of active cases in the world in the UK. Mm. And in, in Europe, we have the, the highest number of deaths and the highest number of cases. So the libertarian attitude that our government has towards this pandemic has not helped people here. You know, we should really have been a little more strict. And I know people are chafing in Australia and in New Zealand as well, but you have managed to keep your cases down in a way that we haven't. You know, the people who are vaccine hesitant, who are, who are you know, for, afraid what might happen with the vaccine, I have some sympathy for those because I'm a, mm. I'm a anxious flyer. 
Yeah, and no too. amount of you rationally telling me that how safe airplanes are, and I know because I've been going on airplanes all my life, I know how rationally safe they are, yeah. stops me from being nervous about it and anxious about it. I never fail to be anxious going up, and I'm always happy coming down. So I, I appreciate for the vaccine hesitant, no amount of me telling them it's, it's going to make it easier for them. But those people who say it's all about their personal liberty, I'm afraid I, I really don't have much time for those, you know. And, and the stick I get about it online is just ridiculous. I mean, people telling me that, um, you know, the 1980s Billy Bragg will be appalled that I'm in favour of vaccination and, and uh, masks and everything. And I'm like, mate, listen, Margaret Thatcher's most famous saying was, there is no such thing as society. There are only individuals and families. And that's what you're saying when you're saying, I don't want to wear a mask. That's what you're saying when you're saying, I refuse to be vaccinated because it's my personal freedom. You're saying that... There's no such thing as society. What I'm saying is what I've always said. I'm in favour of the common good. In the end, you know, whatever, as a society, we have to work to hold up those people who are having the most difficult time. And the, really the people who are having the most difficult time during this period are the immunocompromised. And we have to do more to to create a situation where we have this thing under control. I mean, I don't think we'll ever eradicate it, to be honest now. But we need to get to a situation where we have it under control. And we're nowhere near that at the moment in the UK. I think in the end, like I said, I want this pandemic to end and I want to do everything exactly. I can. So, and, and I'll actually be honest with you, I've been encouraged in my belief in, in human nature because although our mask mandate ended, ended here in July, when I go to my local supermarket, it's a big supermarket, I'd say 85, 90% of the people there are wearing masks. And they're doing it out of self-interest. I realise that. They don't want to get it. But they recognise that, you know, they have to take responsibility for themselves, myself included. I mean, I wear a mask when I go there as well. Um, so, you know, I, that encourages me. I, you know, I, I kind of help to, in some ways to restore my faith in human nature, to realise that people are, you know, concerned enough and, and are willing to, to show their commitment to the common good, that they're willing to go above and beyond what the government are asking them to do and wear a mask. Two lovers meet in the park Friends bond over drinks after dark Walk on a beach so far out of reach And a million things that never happened at all Last Christmas at the old place A convivial chat face to face The expectant delight of a Saturday night And a million things that never happened at all Now, you mentioned the, the song Should Have Seen It Coming, which is the lead-off track, which could have even been inspired by something that Woody Guthrie did, really. It sounds as though it might have come from that sort of thing. But And you can think of it as a comment on the pandemic, or as you mentioned, much more widely. But it seems to sum up the, the dilemma we're going through. Well, once it's once you're in it, you suddenly, it's, you know, it's suddenly everywhere, isn't it? You kind of start seeing re resonances about it, around it. A lot of the resonances early on for us in the, uh, in the first lockdown 
was the uh, Second World War and the Blitz. Mm, yeah. You know, that was many people, uh, you know, said that that had a, yeah. uh, and both it was both used to encourage us to, you know, to do what we could do, but also to sort of make people think, well, we have been through tough times before and perhaps we can get through these tough times again by working together. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, it's helpful to have a reflection, whether it's from fiction or whether it's from uh, folk memory, mm. to realise that, you know, we you know, we have faced up to these things before, but the de- the debates around. I mean, you know, you got to think to yourself, what would lockdown lockdown have been like without the internet? It would have been dreadful. But by the same token, it's it's allowed the most ridiculous theories and complaints to get the oxygen of publicity. You do have to wonder sometimes what people are thinking if they're if they're deworming themselves with horse drugs. It's like what you know, what is going on here? coming but I didn't have the time far too busy grafting to pick up on the signs it came up through the static and hit me from behind I should have seen it coming but I didn't have the time and things like that in in a way but there that is just one of well, several beautiful ballads on the album which i guess is sometimes overlooked in your work the 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 ballad writing because there are some beautiful songs here and i could mention i mentioned that i believe in you and that those songs are really um stand out to me in a way well, I've always had a, a feel for ballads. You know, I, I listened to a lot of singer-songwriters in my youth and was a great admirer of songwriters like uh, Paul Simon, mm. um, you know, Jackson Brown, those kind of guys who wrote great ballads. So I do, you know, I do find that it does, you know, you don't have to be angry all the time. And if you're going to try and put across a compassionate idea, it's sometimes uh, it, it's make it works better if you, if you, you know, ease people into it a little more, uh, a little less stringently. So, yeah, I, I love those songs. And, you know, to me, the, the, the greatest single of all time is uh, The Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. You know, the greatest mm. three-chord trick anybody ever played. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's, that's as much me as, you know, uh, the world turned upside down or to have and to have not.
Podcast. I'm Brian Wise. I'm talking to Billy Bragg about his new album, The Million Things That Never Happened. Mid-Century Modern is a terrific song about sort of what's going on or what has been going on over recent years. It's a terrific summation of how things have changed. And one of the lines in it is it's hard to get your bearings. And some of those things that we're brought up on, maybe men in particular, they're hard to break out of, aren't they? They are. They are. And really, that's what the song is about. Mid-Century Modern is actually a a a style of um, interior design. But when I heard that term, I thought, well, that's kind of me and my generation. We're kind of mid-century modern. You know, we really need to be in a headspace where we're able to update our our worldview away from the politics that we learned in the, you know, in my case, in the 1980s. You know, Margaret Thatcher's dead. So, you know, you can't ask her what she thought of your portrayal of her in The Crown anymore. You know, she's gone. And as, as a result of that, I really have to think about where politics are today. And and they have changed incredibly, I think. You know, the idea of the, the you know, ideological politics that were prevalent when I was learning um, left and right, that certainly passed on. But I also think that as um, the modern right have developed this obsession with individual liberty, Mm. so the young generation coming through have realised that really that is nothing more than an excuse for licence to be able to say whatever they want to say. And actually, young people are more interested now, I think, in accountability. I think they recognise that that is the most important aspect of freedom. If you're able to hold people in power to account, or even just that person you're arguing with on Twitter, if you're able to hold them to account, then, you know, you have you have the ability there to, to you know, bring about real change. So that that's to me, is a huge shift in my thinking. And I refer to it in mid-century modern. You know, I say that, you know, positions I took long ago feel comfy as an old armchair. But the kids that tear the statues down, they challenge me to see the gap between the man I am and the man I want to be. So those young people, you know, the what happened last year with Black Lives Matter, the 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 woman who filmed the clip of George Floyd being murdered was only 17 years old. And she was smart enough to think if I record this, you know, people will be held to account for this because people won't believe this happened. You know, if we just tell them what happened, they'll it'll get swept away. But if I film this and put this online, I understand, I know that when people see this, they'll react the way I'm reacting now. So instead, while everybody else got angry around her, and rightly so, she was smart enough to think, I'm going to film this. And imagine what's come from that one moment, that one moment of foresight. She was absolutely right because people do want accountability. And over the years, you know, I, I think in the end, sort of the politics I've always been interested in, call them socialism, if you like, are, are about accountability. They are about holding um, absolute power to account, whether it's the absolute power of politicians or the absolute power of, of uh, corporations. Of course. And that's we're going to have to do this. You know, we're going to have to do this if we're going to do anything about the, the, the climate change. And we're going to have to be accountable ourselves as well about the climate. So I think accountability is, uh, to me now, seems absolutely central to my politics. And perhaps it always was, but I didn't recognise that. And that's what I'm trying to talk about in that song. You know, it's not like I've shifted hugely 
in where my politics are coming from. But I've realized that actually, you know, the things I've been talking about all this time are actually manifesting in a different way now. And I need to adjust to that way in order to keep faith with my original politics. Because as you said, you know, you've, you're not comfortable with the word of the idea of Australia Day. And you'd like to move on to refer to, inv- I think it's Invasion Day. Day. Is that what they call it? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah Invasion Day. Day. You'd like to call it, you know, none of us are as, as young as we were, Brian, you know. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm a 63-year-old bloke. I'm trying to make an album that reflects that without being, you know, churlish about it. And I'm also trying, you know, and I also want people to, who are listening are also my age to realise that they also perhaps have to reappraise their politics and, have, you know, pay a bit more attention and try and find another way to articulate what it is they believe in that makes sense to young people today and is able allows you then to be part of the debate. Finally, Billy, let me ask you about the the closing track, 10 Mysterious Photographs That Can't Be Explained, which you can explain to us, which features your your son, Jack. And as you said, it is a stomper. You'd like to finish an album with a stomper, and it's a a beauty. I think so, yeah. It's great. Tell us about that particular song. Well, 10 Mysterious Photos That Can't Be Explained was a a website, the name of a webpage that kept popping up at the bottom of my screen every time I was on YouTube, all through the lockdown. I never did look at it because I knew that... Probably I could explain them and probably it wouldn't just be 10 photos. It would also be 15 adverts as well. But it was there all the time niggling away. And I, and for someone like myself, who's A, an autodidact and two, really, really curious, that wormhole, to go down that wormhole for me is really, really dangerous. And so I wanted to try to write a song about that because, you know, I'm, I'm not against, you know, I don't think the internet is a bad thing. 
But I do think it reflects humanity. It's who we are. You know, anything good or bad in there is us reflected. It's not It's not the, the medium. It's us that's the problem. So I wanted to write a song about that. So I wrote this song and it was, it, you know, I had loads of great lyrics, and but no chorus. It had an A part and a B part. It just went round and round, you know. And my son, who heard the song over Christmas, he came home and I played him some of the tracks and that I'd been sent from the studio and sang along. He was like, oh, you know, that... 10 mysterious photos, bit that, that should be the chorus. And I was like, yeah, but then that would mean I have to get rid of all these lyrics and I don't want to do that. So he said, well, write a middle eight. And I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, right. This is the song, Jack. This is how I've written it, okay? But he said, look, let me have a go and see if I can find a middle eight. So he took the lyrics and he came back half hour later and he played it to me and it worked fine with the chorus as that bit, 10 mysterious photos, and the other lines as middle eight. So that was how I recorded it. And he came to the studio on that day and we had a lot of fun. I mean, he's, you know, he's been a songwriter for 10 years, but he's never been around when I've been making albums. The last album, which was 2013, I made in Los Angeles. So he wasn't around for that. And then the album before that, which was made in, I think, 2006, I'm not even sure he was writing songs there. So this is the first time he's been, you know, sort of engaged in songwriting enough to be able to, to get involved. And I, you know, I enjoyed the process. He came to the studio because he only lives up the road from the studio. He came to the studio on that day and played on the song. And I hope, you know, we he might come to me with an idea and say, you know, I'm stuck on this song, Dad, what do you reckon? You know, because we've, we've talked about songwriting before, but not in a, I've never been critical of his songwriting. I've never tried to take one of his songs apart and put it back together again. But I'd like to think that now he's he's had a bit of that working with me that we might be able to do that if he wants to. You know, again, it's up to him. I don't want to be rock star dad and start telling him how to write songs. He's quite capable of writing a great song himself without me looking over his shoulder. But if he does get stuck, I'm happy to come and give him a hand. And likewise, next time I'm stuck, I'll ring him up. So what do you reckon to this? Well, your friend Joe Henry's recorded with his son, Levon. There might be a chance that you two might record together. You exactly. Know. In fact, I saw Paul Weller with his daughter on the telly the other day on, the, on, on his new single with his daughter. So it's obviously a coming thing. But it's just a great, for me, it's just a great uh, sort of passing on the baton, you know. He's he's seen me, you know, throughout my career. And I think he he found that, uh, you know, I suppose he figured if the old man can do it, it can't be that hard. Maybe I should maybe I should have a go. So he's he's pretty good, actually. You know, he's written some songs that are really I found really, you know, great earworms that I've I still hear from time to time pop up. And I think, oh, is that one of our jacks, that one? That's brilliant. Now the angry old men say it was better back when We used to keep the Aspidistra flying Now it may be the case that we can't change our fate But there's surely no army trying It's in mysterious photos that can't be explained A drain in a way The best of my day And fragments of songs that I never wrote Just a click away from all of the facts But there's a downside if you've a curious mind It's like heroin for all autodidacts But Tim mysterious photos that can't be explained Are drying in a way The best of my day and fragments of songs That I never wrote Erupting in the pockets of my winter car 
Hey, thanks so much for talking to us. Hey, one of the th- things before you go, I need a recommendation because one of the things that I've been uncovering is all my vinyl collection. What have you rediscovered in the last year or so that you'd forgotten about or you've found has been terrific because I've been given so much joy by rediscovering so many of my old albums. What have you rediscovered? Well, I'll tell you what's really helped me rediscover my albums and go back and listen to my albums. It's actually a podcast. There's a podcast called A History of Rock in 500 Songs. Uh, by a, uh, an English guy's name. His name's Brian, actually. I can't remember his surname, which is really bad. But it's a really brilliant podcast because he goes deep into all these songs from rock history, starting in the 1940s. He's just got up to the mid-60s now. He's just done um, uh, I Can't Help Myself by the Four Tops last week. You'd love and that. And it's a wonderful thing because there's already there's already like a hundred and something of them. So you can dip into anywhere you like. But the thing it does is you, I play these records and I go off and I'm like, I, I went through... Uh, a huge Manfred Mann thing after listening to the program about Do Wa Diddy. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, wow, Manfred Mann, I've totally forgotten about Manfred Mann. So that that that's been my uh, big uh, discovery during the, the the pandemic is listening to the 500 uh, history in 500 songs has drawn me to loads of material that I haven't that I haven't even really listened to. I mean, I never really listened to Manfred Mann, but I'd heard him if you know what I mean. You know, you just picked him up in the ether. So going back to that has been brilliant. Great. Hey, thanks for talking to us. All the best, and uh, we'll we'll see you here early next year. Fingers crossed, Brian. Fingers Good crossed. Time, Bye. Bye. Tell you about the man friends, the music that they're putting down. They started to play a rainy day, and the people came from miles around. They didn't come for the Singer looking sweet Mike Hunt plays the drums, yeah Tom McGinnis lays it down on the bass But the one in the middle sings Hey, diddle, diddle, cat He's just a pretty face They didn't come for the rhythm Singer looking sweet They couldn't have Great Manfred Band, led by Paul Jones on vocals and the one in the middle, a song that was the title track of an EP they released in 1965, which also included a great version of Watermelon Man, and that was one of Billy Bragg's recent rediscoveries, and we were talking to Billy Bragg in conversation. I hope you enjoyed our chat and the music that I played from Billy's latest album, The Million Things That Never Happened, and I'll just tell you what we heard during the interview. Ten mysterious photos that can't be explained, mid-century modern, I believe in you, I Should Have Seen It Coming, the title track of the album, The Million Things That Never Happened, I Will Be Your Shield, Pass It On, and Good Days and Bad Days. Pretty good representation of what is a terrific album. We also heard in there Moonlight Mile, a song that originally appeared on the Sticky Fingers album. Now, Rolling Stones purists will tell you that Keith didn't actually play guitar on the track. However, I played the live version recorded at the Fonda Theatre in 2015, where they celebrated the anniversary of Sticky Fingers, and Keith was actually playing on that particular track. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation 
conversation with Billy Bragg. He will be back in Australia and New Zealand early next year where he's going to be presenting the One Step Forward, Two Steps Back tour. And the idea is that he'll be playing three consecutive shows in each city over three nights. And the first night will be a current and mixed bag Billy Bragg set. The second night will contain songs from his first three albums and the third from his second three albums. Tickets are available now. Thanks very much for listening. You can find all the details of Rhythms magazine at rhythms.com.au. I'll be back with another Rhythms podcast next week. Mm -hmm.